Easterners tend to talk faster sometimes when they get excited. So I might fall into that, which isn't helpful because I'm not clear when I talk fast. So I'm going to try to slow down and take my time and try to be more like the Midwest. You'd think I've lived here for 35 years, I would know how to talk slower, but I haven't quite figured that part out yet. Um, I am preaching on prayer this morning, but I'm going to take a little bit of a detour before I get there. So just so you know, I do know where I'm going. I just might not look like it when I start. Um, Julie and I recently celebrated our uh, 30th wedding anniversary, and so to celebrate that, we went to the exotic city of West Branch, Iowa, to the exotic location of the Herbert Hoover Presidential Library and Museum. So I know you're all wishing you were married to me, aren't you? (laughs) I don't know much about Herbert Hoover, and so I was interested to go see that, because obviously it's a pro-Hoover place, but I was... I'm kind of clueless about him. He's maybe a little bit before the presidents that I have read about. Hoover and his wife were a very capable couple, quite, quite capable. Um, Hoover was involved in helping to feed Europe after World War I and after World War II. Hoover served as the uh, Secretary of Commerce in the 20s. And if you notice the difference in older houses versus not so older houses, how things actually fit in the newer houses... Hoover was involved in standardizing screw sizes and nail sizes and all those things so that people could actually take care of their, their, own, their own homes. Hoover helped to standardize road laws, traffic laws throughout the country so that when you went from one city to another, you didn't need to know what the rules were. Quite, uh, quite an amazing guy. Um, and his wife as well was with him along the way, helping him. Um, I believe I remember seeing that she knew six languages. She was quite capable and smart. In 1914, before heading over to Europe, uh, Lou Henry Hoover, the wife, his, his wife, wrote a letter to her then 11 and 7-year-old sons in case uh, she died. So this would be read to them in case she passed away because they were heading into a dangerous part of, of, of uh, Europe. In the letter, I'm going to read just a couple of excerpts from it. I want you to listen for what's missing. She says this, Just exactly what God is like, of course, no one knows. If he had wanted us to know, he would have made it quite plain and simple. I think that he started a lot of forces in the world and leaves them all to do their work. He made us, and then he put a lot of human forces inside of us, like love and hate, and then he gave us a will. Speaking of the soul in death, she continues, with some, the soul just goes straight back to God in the place they call heaven that we really don't know very much about. If it has been a, a rather a lazy soul, it may just sort of go to sleep there. But sometimes they go about helping. And if another soul that is still in a body like yours is wanting some help and is praying for some force to come from God, this helping soul may take some along and help. And that's what I want you to be perfectly sure about me. I know that if I should die, I can pray my soul to go over to my two dear little boys and to help and comfort their souls. So aside from the theology, I hope you notice what's missing in in that. There's no mention of Christ. And you can tell from her theology that there's probably no mention of Christ going to be in the rest of the letter. She didn't seem to know or understand who Jesus was. There's a reference to God as there is in a lot of places in our society. A lot of assumptions that she made about what she thinks God is like. False religions, false ideas about God and Christ, or about God at least, are often missing or misunderstanding or misrepresenting the truth about Christ. Mormonism, in all of its forms, um, represents Jesus as being a man who achieved his status. He did the work and now God is rewarding him for that. Roman Catholicism claims that we need an intercessor between us and Jesus as if somehow we're distant from him, that his purpose here wasn't to join us, to intercede for us. And claims that if we commit certain sins, we need to be absolved by a priest, otherwise our souls are in danger, as if the work of Jesus on the cross wasn't enough to actually cover our sins all the way to the end. We know that every false religion, every false teaching takes its eyes off of Jesus and puts it on ourselves. 
Even within the church, we can be tempted to lose sight of that. In this letter to the Colossians, Paul addresses some kind of false teaching uh, that is threatening the life of the church there. We're not totally sure what this false teaching is exactly, but um, what is clear in what Paul does say is that the false teaching seems to minimize or misrepresent Christ. Paul makes mention of this false teaching throughout chapter 2. We won't read chapter 2, but I'll point you there. In chapter 2, verse 4, he refers to it as deluding you with persuasive argument, as if there's some good, wise argument that, that, can, that can convince you of something other than Christ. Thinking of 1 Corinthians, where Paul mentions that they did, he didn't come to them with persuasive argument, but with the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 8, here in Colossians, he mentions being taken captive through philosophy and empty deception, according to the tradition of men and not according to Christ, right? that there's some human element to this that we need to be saved or to keep our salvation. And then in the, most of the chapter of chapter 2, verses 16 through 23, Paul emphasizes that this false teaching is based on the teaching of men. It's based on a self-made religion and not based on Christ. So this false teaching is either seeking to minimize what Christ has done for us in salvation or sanctification or it seeks to exalt something such as works over Christ. Either way, it's the same result for us. The false teaching is claiming that Jesus is not sufficient in our salvation, in our sanctification. Somehow Jesus is not supreme in that. I think that's part of the reason why this letter is written If you read through Colossians, and we'll read through some of it, you see a very high view of Christ in this letter, more so maybe than any of his other letters. Jesus is supreme in everything to Paul, and he emphasizes that over and over again throughout this letter. Jesus is sufficient for all that we need. We know God through Jesus. We are saved through Jesus. We are kept saved through Jesus. He is sufficient and supreme for all. So, as we look at Paul's opening prayer, the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus is foundational to how he prays for the Colossians. We'll talk through that here in a second. Right, so Paul has never met the Colossians. He's, he wasn't there to found it. He's, as far as we know, never met them, never visited there. He knows a couple people there. He's heard of them through his friends there, but, but he's never actually been there. And yet, he says he prays regularly for them because of what he has heard and knows about them and because of what he hears, has, what he knows about Jesus. Before we get into the text here, I hope that uh, a couple of threads I want to point out that you heard Mark read, and I'm going to keep going back to them, so I'll mention it up front. One is knowledge, wisdom, understanding. Paul mentions that twice, knowledge in his opening prayer. The Colossians already know something, something specific about Jesus. And because they know this, it has led them to salvation. And two, the second thread is the all or every. I think five times Paul uses that all or every word. All spiritual wisdom, all respects, every good work, all power, all steadfastness. Carries the idea of completeness, of fullness, of sufficiency. Because the Colossians already have a saving knowledge of Christ. They already have all they need to be pleasing to God. That's the main idea Paul wants to convey to them. Because they already have available to them all the knowledge they need to be pleasing to God in Christ, they don't need anything else. So whatever the false teachers are bringing, whatever they're saying to you that's taking your eyes off of Christ, reject it. You have all that you need in Christ. So really what it comes down to in all this discussion and what Paul's going to be talking to is um, do we really have all that we need to maintain our salvation? Right? Most, even the false religions would agree that, that we need faith in Christ to be saved, but then how do we maintain that salvation? Paul's going to make the case that they already have what they need and they don't need anything else. So what does all this have to do with prayer? Specifically intercession where We are praying for other believers. What we believe about the sufficiency and supremacy of Jesus impacts what we know about other believers. And so impacts the way we pray for them. 
even the believers that we don't know. Because again, Paul's praying for a church he's never met. But because of what he knows about their salvation, what he knows about Christ, he can pray confidently and boldly for them. If we don't think that Jesus is supreme or sufficient in everything, we're going to pray much differently for each other, let alone for someone outside of our church. In this passage, I want to give you four thoughts that keep Christ supreme in our intercession, our prayers for other believers. This is going to apply to believers in our church, believers in other churches, in our denomination, whether we know them personally or not. So if someone is praying for a believer, these four thoughts about Jesus' supremacy will guide us in our prayers for other believers. The first thought to help you keep Christ supreme in your prayers for others is to think about the reason for your intercession. What is the reason for your intercession? This answer is kind of the why we are praying for this person in the first place. That's in verse 9. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. So Paul has heard something about the Colossians that leads him to pray a certain way for them and to not cease praying for them because of what he's heard. What he's heard is in verses 3 through, three through 8, also reading in verse 3 of chapter 1 of Colossians. We give thanks to God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, praying always for you, since we heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and the love which you have for all the saints, because of the hope laid up for you in heaven, of which you previously heard in the word of truth, the gospel, which has come to you just as in all the world also, it is constantly bearing fruit and increasing, even as it has been doing in you also since the day you heard of it and understood the grace of God in truth. So what's the reason that Paul is praying for the Colossians? What's the reason for Paul's intercession? Because they're believers. Because they have placed their faith in Christ. How does he know that they're believers? Faith, love, and hope. You saw three of those in that text. They have faith in Jesus, they love the saints, and they have hope in heaven. What Paul has heard about them influences then his ability, his intercession, his willingness to intercede for them. He's heard of their faith in Jesus Christ. That's a faith to save. The common usage of the word faith in our society can be a little nebulous, a little squishy. And so this, this uh, what, what Paul is saying, though, isn't quite that way, right? Paul is being very specific about this faith. The idea here is of a turning from sin and a, and a turning to Christ to save. I know that seems very basic and we all know that, but in our society, faith isn't always understood that way. His faith has, has a focus, has a purpose, right? They recognize their own inability to be righteous, to be holy, to come to God, to pay for their sins. And so they have turned to Christ to save them. And Paul has heard of that. He has heard of their faith. It is specifically in Christ to save He has heard of their love for the saints. This is a love for other believers. If I could have a big graphic over my head, this would be where I put it. This is huge. Our love for each other is maybe one of the most important fruits that we have as Christians in our lives that give evidence that we are believers. When Paul hears of this, it convinces him, right? John 15, Jesus says to his disciples, this is my commandment that you love one another just as I have loved you. And then in 1 John, John reiterates, we know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. Our love for believers, other believers, is not only evidence uh, to the world that we're of Christ, it's also evidence to other believers that we love Christ. This is a love for all the saints, all the believers that we come in contact with. Believers in this church and other churches, those we sent away, any believer you come in contact with. You felt that when you meet a believer that you've never met before, but you immediately feel a connection, a love for them, when you begin to talk to them. That's this love we're talking about, this love that we have for others. Our love for each other is an indication of, a measure of, our faith in Jesus. And Paul has heard of their hope, a hope laid up in heaven. It's another evidence of true faith is the believer's hope on their future 
are we eagerly looking forward to heaven? That's an indication of our, of our faith. Are we distracted or weighed down by the circumstances of this world? Hopefully we're not because our sights are set on eternity. Our belief, as the believer, our hope is not found in things of this life, right? Our hope is not found in, as Paul will say later in this letter, days and seasons and food and drink. Our hope is not found in politics or health or wealth. Our hope is in the fullness, the sufficiency of what we know that Christ has already done for us. And that guarantees our future. These believers aren't perfect, but that's the general attitude, the general focus, the general uh, trajectory of their lives. is faith, love, hope. I hope you notice in verse 6. Notice what Paul says there in verse 6. He sees the same fruit in their lives that he sees in every other place where the gospel is preached and believed. Every other place where there's a church, there is this kind of fruit. So in the places that Paul does know, because he's been everywhere, he knows a lot of people, he knows a lot of churches, the same fruit he saw there, he sees in you, Colossians. That gives him confidence that they are true believers because he sees the same fruit in them. Whatever the Colossians have already learned about Christ has brought about the same sufficient, full salvation in them that it brings about elsewhere and others that believe. The evidence of their lives then shows that they don't need anything else for their salvation or their sanctification apart from Christ. So when we see these things in others, this faith, the hope, and love, we too can know that they show evidence of of salvation, of true faith in Christ. Because all believers are saved the same way through faith in Christ and grow towards the same goal, which is Christ's likeness, being pleasing to God, and we all have that same hope of heaven, that same hope of eternity, we can pray for all believers in similar ways because we all have that same, that same salvation. Even if we don't know the individual circumstances of a believer's life or a church's life, we do know that God is renewing them Renewing them in Christ in the same way that he renews us all. In chapter 3, verse 10, Paul will say this. And have put on the new self who is being renewed to a true knowledge according to the image of the one who created him. A renewal in which there is no distinction between Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave and freeman, but Christ is all and in all. Well, each person's circumstances will be different. We don't need to know them specifically in order to pray for them or know what those circumstances are. We can pray biblically, confidently, intelligently because of what Christ is doing in them. There is a fullness found in Christ that applies to every believer regardless of where they come from. Regardless of what social status they come from, regardless of what country they come from, Christ is doing the same work in all of us and it's sufficient for all of us to save. There is a fullness, a sufficiency of knowledge in Christ, a sufficiency of fullness of wisdom in Christ. The reason we would pray for other believers is because we see the fruit of that salvation in their lives and so we're going to pray a certain way for them. Their faith in Christ, their love for other believers, their hope in heaven. And because they are believers, we can know that they have already what they need to be pleasing to God because they have Christ. So, do you see this evidence in the lives of their believers in your church? In this church? Do you see it in other churches in our area? Do you see it or hear of it in the lives of the workers in Central Asia? Do you see or hear of it in other churches that are part of our denomination? When you see that, when you see this same uh, faith and hope and love, you can know that you are united to Christ through Christ and through his spirit. You are united to them, excuse me. The same God, the same spirit, the same hope. I think sometimes we get tripped up on our differences and we miss what we are united in. And then that might keep us from praying for them. Our unity in Christ is the supreme reason 
that we are to pray for other believers, even if we disagree on some of the secondary and smaller issues. The second thought to keep Christ supreme in your prayers for others is to think about the content of your intercession. The content of your intercession is the second half of verse 9. And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So what are we praying for? The content of our prayer for other believers is that they would be filled with the knowledge of God's will. That seems like a fairly simple and straightforward prayer. May be filled, another reference to fullness. It's a passive, and so we are being filled. Someone, something is filling us with that knowledge. Paul's praying that God would fill the Colossians with the fuller knowledge of himself. I'll note here, we know God because he has made himself known to us. If God doesn't reveal himself to us, we're not going to know him. But he has made himself known to us. In order to know God, we need to know what he's made known about himself. And he has done that through his word and through Christ. We'll talk about that here more in a minute. So thinking back to the letter, that's the first thing that jumped in my mind as I was reading the letter in the, in the museum, that part of the letter about if God wanted to make himself known, he would have made it simple to us. He has. Right? He has made it simple to us. But we need God to help us to see that as well. Our own ability is not going to help us to understand God any better, or at, at to start with, I should say that. It's God's spirit working in us. Back to the text. What is God's will? I don't think that Paul is speaking of some secret will that God hasn't revealed to them or some specific will being done in a specific person's life. Like what is God's will for me? Who am I going to marry? What job am I going to have? All, that, all the, those, those sorts of questions. Paul is speaking though about what God has already made known because he makes reference to God's will later in the letter. Chapter 1, verse 25 Of this church I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit, so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God, that is, the mystery which has been hidden from the past ages and generations, but has now been manifested to his saints, to whom God willed to make known that it is the riches of the glory of this mystery among the Gentiles, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. God's will had been hidden before, but now he's made it known. And God has made his will known specifically in Christ. When we see Jesus, we can know we are understanding and seeing God's will. A sufficient understanding of God's will. So when we come to know God's will, we we come to understand Christ. Or you can do it the other way too. If we come to understand Christ, we have to come to understand God's will. Christ's life, his death, his resurrection, all a reflection of the will that God wants us to know. Chapter 2, verse 2, Paul mentions it again. That their hearts may be encouraged, having been knit together in love and attaining to all the wealth that comes from the full assurance of understanding, resulting in a true knowledge of God's mystery, that is, Christ himself, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The content of our prayer for other believers understands that Christ is supreme and Christ is the key, if you will, to understanding what God's will is. Whatever God does for believers, he does through, because of Christ. So when we see Jesus, as he says to his disciples, you have seen the Father. We are understanding God as we understand Jesus. So when we pray as Paul prays for other believers, we're asking God to fill them with a better or deeper knowledge and understanding of what Christ has done and what Christ is doing and who Christ is. Because it's only through Christ that we're going to understand God's will. The believer does not need to seek knowledge apart from Christ to understand God's will. We don't need to put forth, like, be careful how I say this, we don't need to put forth an effort apart from Christ, how's that, to find and understand God's will. It's all found in Christ. Any effort you're putting into understanding God's will should be your understanding of Christ, your pursuit of him. So, 
the believer already has available to them all the knowledge and understanding of God that they will need for salvation and sanctification because God has made Christ known to them. Not that we all have a full knowledge of Christ, a a mature understanding of Christ. That's what we're trying to seek as we grow in Christ. But we will find all that we need for salvation and sanctification. Notice that Paul qualifies this knowledge with the phrase, in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So this knowledge that believers are filled with does not just stand on its own as if all they simply needed to know was knowledge. Wisdom and understanding are part of a right or full understanding of God's will. And the pairing of those two ideas, wisdom and understanding, is throughout Scripture. I'm sure many of you recognize that. Exodus 31 and 35 tell us that God fills some with knowledge and wisdom and understanding in their work of building the tabernacle and its accessories. Second Chronicles 1, when, Solomon, when God appears to Solomon and offers him anything, Solomon asks for wisdom and understanding so he may lead God's people. And Proverbs has several references to those who fear the Lord are given wisdom and understanding. The combination of these two ideas, that wisdom and understanding, suggests that God's people are marked by a right ability to discern and apply the true knowledge of Christ and his will, which they find in Christ. So, in Paul's prayer for the Colossians, he's praying that they will fully, rightly discern and apply what they know and what they find in Christ. You think about the false teaching we mentioned earlier, because the Colossians rightly know about Christ and rightly know God through Christ, they should be able to rightly discern that false teaching and recognize that it is false and they can reject it. That's what Paul is praying for them to apply that truth. Paul's prayer is that they grow in their ability to discern and apply the truth of God that they already know and not fall into the trap of the false teachers. In the same fashion that we can pray for other believers to not fall into those traps. False teaching is subtle at times and can take our eyes off of Christ and we don't even know it. So our prayer for other believers, the content to know God's will is so one of the reasons they won't fall into those traps of false teachers. So if you're praying for members of Summit Woods, then you should be assuming they are believers because that's why they're a member of Summit Woods and that they have and will grow in this knowledge of God's will. And that their ability to discern and apply this truth will increase. You should be able to pray that confidently. You're praying that they would rightly discern false teaching and false ideas, whether from within the church or without, whether from within Christianity or without, and that they would not be drawn away from their love for the saints or their ultimate hope in heaven. Because we can fall easily into those traps of being distracted and discouraged by the things around us. As you pray for other churches... Maybe some who claim the same denomination that we do. You may be tempted to talk poorly about them or to think poorly about them because of some of the stuff that you see in them. If they claim to be a Southern Baptist church, then at some point they have proclaimed the same faith, hope, and love in Christ that you have. Your prayer for them should be that they would recognize the false teaching and return to Christ fully. In the same way, Paul prays for this church. We don't know the extent of the Colossian, the heresy that's there. Have the Colossians begun to fall for it? Are they still holding fast? What's going on that has concerned Paul here? Well, he's praying that they would recognize what they have in Christ is sufficient and they don't need the rest, the other false teaching. There's no greater knowledge that a believer needs than the knowledge of God's will as we see it expressed in Christ. So there's nothing better that you can pray for other believers than that they know God, God's will better, that they grow in their knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding. There's nothing wrong with praying other things for other believers as you know their circumstances, but there's no greater thing we can pray for than for them to grow in their knowledge of God's will. The third thought to keep Christ supreme in your prayers for others is to think about the expectation of your intercession. The expectation. So when you're praying for others, what do you expect 
to be the result of your prayers. They're going to grow in this knowledge and this wisdom and understanding. So now what should you expect? That's what Paul talks about in verse 10 through 12. So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, to please him in all respects, bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, strengthened with all power according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience, joyously giving thanks to the Father. The expectation of your intercession for other believers is that they will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, pleasing to Christ in all respects. Your expectation is that their life will look like their believers. That's a reasonable and right expectation. Paul's expectation for the Colossians is that as they are filled with the knowledge of God and they grow in their wisdom and understanding that their lives look more and more like Christ and less and less like the world, less and less like they used to look, definitely less like what the false teachers are looking like. God has revealed the mystery of his will, the mystery being Christ. Those who have believed that Jesus is the Messiah have also been united to Christ in spirit. And so, because we have a union with Christ, our lives should then reflect that union, that change that comes about. The life of the believer should increasingly look like the life of Christ. We find this idea of walk throughout the scripture. Again, Proverbs talking about walking. Talks about how the wicked person has left the straight paths to walk in dark ways. The seductive woman's house leads to death and her paths to the spirit of the dead. In Romans 8, Paul contrasts those who walk in the flesh with those who walk in the spirit. When we see this idea of walk in scripture, it's often in contrast. Those who walk according to Christ and those who don't. It should be clear the one life looks different from the life of the other. There should be a distinction and a clarity in that person's life if they claim to be a Christian. So, again, the expectation for Paul is that the Colossians will walk as the righteous walk. They will live their lives in ways that please the Lord and not in ways that would bring shame and dishonor and condemnation. So as you pray for other believers you have no reason to expect anything different as a result of your prayer. Your expectations for other believers should be the same as Paul's for the Colossians, that they would walk lives that are worthy of their Lord. At salvation, God begins to change us. He changes our hearts, he changes our understanding, changes our attitude, and so our actions should follow. So when we pray for believers... We can rightly, biblically expect that their lives will change and are changing due to their union with Christ. And that that will be pleasing to to God and to Christ. So, what does the life of a believer look like such that it is pleasing to God? Well, Paul lists four ways here. Hope you see those. First is bearing fruit in good works. Paul expects that their lives will bear fruit in good works. In short, This bearing fruit is the result of the gospel accomplishing what God intends it to accomplish. Renewal, change, perseverance. These good works are not the kind of works that we might be tempted to think earn us salvation or we've got to do these works because that's what some of the false teachers are teaching. Rather, these works are works that God created for and produces in the believer through the gospel. Ephesians 2.10 For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand so that we would walk in them. The believer is bearing fruit as we walk in the works that God has created for us to do. We've seen some of the, this fruit from these works already in what Paul has heard of the Colossians. We've seen the fruit in their trust in Christ should be a contentment in Christ, a recognition of the sufficiency of Christ in all things. You see this fruit in their love for other believers. Again, so important that we recognize that and see that in others, in, in, in their faith. Our love for each other is an evidence of that fruit working in us. And we see the fruit in their hope of heaven. When we have that hope of eternity, that's a fruit that God is working in us. So Paul prays that this fruit would continue in all that they do. 
Paul continues a bit more on these good works in chapter 3, verse 12. He uses the, uh, the idea of putting on. Chapter 3, verse 12 of Colossians. So, as those who have been chosen of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another and forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord forgave you, so also should you. Beyond all these things, put on love, which is the perfect bond of unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, to which indeed you were called in one body, and be thankful. All those fruits of good works, right? Those are the fruits that we're putting on. We're putting on hearts of compassion and kindness and humility and gentleness and patience. Those are the things that we are practicing with each other. And we should see that fruit in our lives. The contrast to these good works then is seen in some of what the false teaching that Paul's talking about in believing delusions or human arguments and following the traditions of men rather than holding to Christ and holding fast to self-made religion. Those are the kinds of works that are not the good works that God has created for you to follow in. Those are the kind of works that lead us away from Christ and focus on ourselves. They minimize Christ. They tempt us to think more highly of ourselves. The good works that we should expect to see are both internal, you heard those internal to us, the change of heart, and external as we put them into practice and we practice them with each other and others see it. Internally, we're seeing change and seeking change and seeking to be changed, putting aside the old ways, ways that marked us before salvation and putting on the new ways that mark our lives now. And so externally, others see that fruit and that's what we should be seeing in each in each other. Another way we'll see this worthy walk is that the believer is increasing in the knowledge of God. That's that ongoing, continual pursuit of the things of God, that knowledge, wisdom, and understanding. And we can only know what God has made known of himself, but we'll never exhaust what God has made known of himself. He is infinite. There is always something more for us to understand. We see that even now. You read through a book of the Bible for the hundredth time and you see something that you didn't see before. There's never an exhaustion of what we're going to learn and know about God. Then the more we know about God, then the better we respond and the more we know about God. It seems to feed itself. And how do we primarily know about God? Well, that's through Christ again. Let's keep pointing back to Christ and his supremacy in these things. Paul highlights that in chapter 1, verse 15, as he highlights the importance of Christ in knowing God. He, Christ, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. For he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also head of the body of the church and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead so that he himself will come to have first place in everything. For it was the Father's good pleasure for all the fullness to dwell in him and through him to reconcile all things to himself. Having made peace through the blood of his cross, through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven. What's Paul saying about knowing God? Just in summary, I won't explain all those verses. God has made himself fully known through Christ. As you know Christ fully and better, you know God fully and better. And that's, Christ is the primary means he's going to help you to know who he is. There is a fullness of knowledge of God that we find only in Jesus. God's intentions, God's works, God's heart, God's pleasure, all found in Christ. We will not find a true knowledge, a full knowledge of God in persuasive arguments or in human philosophy or in human traditions or in our own abilities, in our own thoughts. What God has made known of himself is found fully in Christ. So when we see and know Christ, we see and know the Father. So the one whose walk is worthy seeks to know God and seeks to know Christ because they're going to get to know God. While we won't know everything there is to know about God, what we do know about him, he is made known through Jesus. A third way that we see the worthy walk is found in verse 11. That's the perseverance in faith. 
read verse 11 again. Strengthened with all power, according to his glorious might, for the attaining of all steadfastness and patience. So as you're praying for believers, another aspect of their worthy walk that you should expect to see in them is a perseverance of their faith. Steadfastness and patience may refer to different aspects of perseverance. Steadfastness, referring to enduring during times of trouble. Patience, enduring and long-suffering difficult people. Regardless, the idea here is that the believer's faith will not fail. It will not cease. It will always remain. Note the all word again, all steadfastness, all patience. The word for all here could suggest a degree or amount, the greatest possible steadfastness and patience. A true believer's faith is a faith, a faith that remains, that perseveres, that never ceases, regardless of the difficulty. The proof of the believer's salvation is not found in that moment in time event, right? We all hear the testimonies and they're great testimonies. We ask for your testimony when we interview new members. We ask you what that conversion moment was. And it's fantastic to hear how God has saved us all in different ways. But your salvation is not found in that moment. Your salvation is found in your perseverance in faith to the end. That's how we're going to see it. For sure. That's the proof that you are saved because you will persevere in your faith. Where does the believer find their ability to persevere? Paul touches on that in this letter as well. Chapter 1, verse 17. In him all things hold together. Chapter 1, verse 20. Through him to reconcile all things to himself. Chapter 1, verse 22, he has now reconciled you in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Chapter 2, verse 10, in him you have been made complete. The believer's perseverance is found because of their union with Christ. Because you have been joined to Christ, you will persevere in your faith. Because Christ is working to do that in you. It is Christ who is keeping us, who is holding us, with persevering us to the end. As you pray for other believers, then you can rightly expect that their faith will remain because it is Christ who's helping it and holding it and keeping it and working it to, to remain. And then the fourth way that we see a worthy walk is found in verse 12, joyously giving thanks. You're giving thanks with joy. When we pray for other believers... We should expect that part of their worthy lives is an attitude of thankfulness towards God for all he has done for them through Christ. You notice the qualifier for giving thanks, we're doing it joyously. Joy is found regardless of the circumstances that we're in. So I don't need to know your circumstances. If you're a believer, your thankfulness should be with joy because God has produced that joy in you. It's something greater than your circumstances. Chapter 3, verse 17. Is the, Whatever you do in word or deed, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks through him to God the Father. So we're to give thanks in all things to the Father through Christ. We've seen a number of things to be thankful for. We should be thankful for our salvation because it didn't come from us. Thankful for our hope because our hope doesn't come from us again. Thankful for the security that God provides. He has promised us an eternity. He has promised to keep us. He has promised to never leave us. We can be thankful for the perseverance. You can look back at your life and see difficult times and your faith remained. That is God working perseverance in you. Be thankful for that, that he has not abandoned you and turned away from you because maybe you struggled with some of that trial. We should be thankful for the knowledge of God and his will. He has made himself known to you. How great is that? How thankful should we be that God has made himself known to me? And if I'm understanding that letter from earlier correctly, she didn't understand who God was, but I do. 
I'm not nearly as smart as she was, or experienced, or as influential as she was, but God has made himself known to me. And he has joined us to each other. He's united us together as believers, locally as a body of Summit Woods. I should be thankful that I am with you, that I am joined with you, together, regularly, praying for each other, loving each other, teaching, being taught. We bring nothing to our salvation. God brings all of it. We earn nothing. God provides all of it as a gift. So we should expect a believer to have a heart of thankfulness. We should be able to remind each other of those things. As we're praying for each other, we should expect thankfulness to be a result of our prayers. So what does a worthy life look like? What should we expect? We should expect that that person that we're praying for, those people we're praying for, bear fruit in every good work. We should expect that they increase in their knowledge of God. We should expect that they would persevere in their faith and we should expect that they should be thankful. Those are all right and biblical expectations because of what we know of them. Because we know that they are believers and we know what God is doing in them. The fourth and final thought, as we see in this passage, to help you keep Christ supreme in your prayers for others is to think about the confidence of your intercession. The confidence of your intercession, verses 12 through 14. So yes, we know they're believers, but how do we know for sure that our prayers are going to be answered? This prayer that we're praying here, verse 12, the middle there, who has qualified us to share in the inheritance of the saints in light? For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We can have confidence in our intercession for other believers because of what God has done for them in salvation through Christ. What God has completed for them in salvation in Christ. Just briefly, you see the three actions there that God has taken or completed for us in salvation. He's qualified us. He's made us, made us worthy to share in the inheritance. He has provided what we need to be considered or counted worthy. Because we're not, right? We know we're not. We know our hearts. We know the wickedness that's in us naturally. But God, through Christ, has made us worthy to be considered his children. Through our union with Christ's life and death and resurrection, we now get to share in eternity with God. This one who was once an enemy is now a child of the king because of what God has done for us through Christ. God has rescued us. That's the second thing God's done there. He has rescued us. He has completed or accomplished our rescue from sin through Christ. So because of Christ, God is able to justly rescue us from the condemnation that we deserved. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ because God has completed that, that rescue. And God has transferred us. God has completed our transfer from one kingdom to another. Not only does he take us out of that domain of darkness, but he has given us a new citizenship. I am now a citizen of heaven because God has transferred me into that kingdom. The redemption that we need, the forgiveness of sins that God requires is found in Christ. God can justly qualify, rescue, and transfer us because Christ has died for our sin. Colossians 1, verse 21. And although you are formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. This is the work that God has completed for us through Christ. We were enemies and now we're sons. We were sinners and now we are holy and blameless because of what God has done for us through Christ. On the cross when Jesus says it is finished, He's completing the work that God gave him to do and completing our salvation and completing all the 
that we need for salvation and for security. When we pray for other believers then, we can have confidence in our, inter- in our intercession because of what God has completed for them through Christ. We've seen four thoughts that hopefully guide us as we pray for other believers. The reason for our intercession right, is because of their faith, because we have seen and heard of their faith. Their faith, their hope, their love, all give evidence to, to the fact that they are saved. They are now saints. The content of our intercession, we saw, was because they are believers, we can pray for them to be filled with the knowledge of God's will and all wisdom and understanding. Now that they've been united to Christ, they can know God more fully. And I can be confident of that because I've seen that in others, right? The expectation of our intercession, because they are believers, we can expect God to do in them what he does in every other believer. So I can pray confidently that God is going to do that in them as well. So even as you're praying for people in this church that you don't know very well, if they're members, you can make an assumption that they are believers. You've heard their testimony very likely, so you can assume that. So you can assume that the expectations for them to bear fruit and to increase the knowledge are the same as they are for you and for any other believer. You can expect that rightly and biblically. And you have confidence in your intercession because God has completed a work. He's done it all. He completed the salvation. He's completed your security. You're trusting and relying on God's completed work. Is this the only way that we can pray for other believers? No. But it's a helpful model to remember. You're focused on what God has done. You'll notice here, Paul's prayer isn't focused on their circumstances. It isn't focused on what he knows or thinks about their current situation. Instead, his prayer is focused on eternal things. He's praying according to what God has made known about himself and about Christ and about his people. Paul's praying to, according to what God has done. And God is doing and God will do for his people. There's nothing wrong, obviously, with praying for believers in their present circumstances. There are plenty of times where Paul prays for that. But even when we don't know those circumstances, or we don't know the believer very well, we can pray for them based on what we know about the supremacy and sufficiency of Christ in all things. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for what you have done. We thank you for making yourself known. We thank you for completing all the work that you mean to complete through Christ for our salvation, for our sanctification, for our perseverance. Thank you that you have joined us together as a body of believers. Locally, globally, you, you unite us through the work of Christ and through your spirit. We pray that as we pray for others, you would rightly help us to remember those things and to pray those things and to be confident that you answer our prayers because of the work that you have done for us. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.